Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Thanks so much for joining us here for episode 73. If you see something dumb going on, in your organization and want to change, but you're not sure what to do or how to do it, or if you're worthy of doing it, or you should be the one to do it, my next guest is going to be super helpful for you. It's Dr. John Carter. He has absolutely towering credentials in this area. So you're going to learn one, the eight critical steps for sparking change in your organization. Two, how you can test drive ideas for your organization at a lower risk. And three, how to find inspiring mentors. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep73. So now a quick bit about John. Regarded by many as the worldwide authority on leadership and change, Dr. John Cotter is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning business and management thought leader, business entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, and Harvard professor. His ideas and books, as well as the company he founded, Carter International, have helped mobilize people around the world to lead organizations and their own lives in an era of increasingly rapid change. Much appreciation for Dr. John Carter sharing his time with us and much appreciation for our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here's John. John, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure. I'd like to start off, first and foremost, it's just been fun in your email signature. I see again and again with the Cotter International, you've got a little penguin integrated into the logo. Can you share with us why the penguin and what's the story behind it? Yeah, a number of years ago, just before we started the firm, um, it's a management consulting firm, Holger Rathgeber, a colleague who now works for the firm in Frankfurt, and I wrote a book that's a fable and which is really off the charts for a Harvard professor. But I've been studying how people learn and decided that this could be a terrific format for helping people. And so we tried it, and it kind of blew everybody away, starting with me, the number of emails that we've gotten from around the world. It was created three-stage plays. There are penguin or iceberg clubs all over the place in Africa and India. So it's just a phenomenon, and uh, whoever put together our first uh, logo said, that's uh, Fred, (laughs) key character in the story. Why don't we incorporate Fred? Because he represents 
not just success, but he represents a lot of what we care about, which was dealing with a very difficult situation. He's not a senior person in the tribe, so to speak, in the colony, and yet he helped them deal with a changing, dangerous world and succeed. And that's what we're all about, uh, millions leading, billions benefiting, and helping um, organizations, mostly corporations, but organizations everywhere that aren't very well equipped to do with that right now. Okay, well, interesting. And so, well, I want to go there next when it comes to the fable as the format. I talk to people and they've got sort of mixed perspectives on the fable. And some people think, oh, you know, we're all growing up. Is that necessary? And others say, oh, this is so much more engaging. I just really kind of fly through it. So you said you did some good research before you decided to go down that path. You've done it a couple times now. Why the fable? Yeah, we just put out our second fable. That's not how we do it here. Uh, meerkats in Africa. The brain, I've been studying the the brain, especially what we're knowing more and more about how this incredibly complex thing works. It's hardwired for stories because for millennium, that's how people learned. We didn't have writing. We didn't have uh, podcasts or uh, movies. And one form of story that particularly was powerful because it could be so kind of interesting and fun and engaging and everybody could sit around the uh, campfire and learn from it from youngsters to uh, grandmas and grandpas was the fable and it has both an intellectual content but it has an emotional component to it that can make it sticky in our brain so people can it engages them they actually do read the thing and it has some lessons which they draw from it, not 73 lessons, but a limited number of important ones. And because of the nature of our brains, which love stories and can retain them, and because uh, fables, uh, like a lot of great stories, have an emotional content, it sticks. And if it sticks, it can help guide your action in the future and make you more effective in how you deal with life. And you're right. There are a lot of people who are very well-educated people whose first reaction is this is beneath them. This is for children, which is a shame because a lot of those people, if they could kind of, you know, have a couple of drinks and read a fable, would get a lot out of it. That's fun. Thank you. Well, there was a CEO of a major health organization, and he just sat down and read the entirety of a business fable <laughs> over the course of a couple hours at this cocktail party. And so I thought, well, this is wild. You know, all of these folks are doctors right? And, and super sharp doctors who have risen to prominence in their leadership positions. And so I thought, well, by golly, if business fables are good enough for them, then I'm going to get over myself and get on board. That's a terrific story. And, uh, you know, I was joking before, but not much. You just got to get people to kind of erase uh, social norms which is if we're really well-educated, we're above this kind of stuff, and get them to relax in a social setting, and their brains take over, uh, and their brains love this stuff, and um, that's very good. That's very good. Glad to hear it. So could you maybe share with us, what is a little bit of the core story or key lessons coming out of the book? That's not how we do it here. Well, as the title suggests, the world changes on these meerkats uh, in some fundamental ways, and they're typical in the sense that they're a mature, successful group, and they handle these basic changes uh, the way mature, successful groups tend to, which unfortunately doesn't get them much. It makes things worse rather than better. They cling to how they do it because that has worked. 
it's very predictable how this goes. And um, so lesson uh, one is the world is changing in more fundamental ways. That's not just a rumor. Number two, mature good organizations, much less bad ones, tend to handle that very poorly. They handle being reliable and efficient, not uh, being fast and rigorous in the face of new conditions. But I think a lot of us have a Oh, I don't know if it's uh, it's an idealistic notion that what we need are these uh, really uh, kind of cool, rapid, uh, low policy and rule organizations, kind of like an Internet startup. Mm -hmm. And if we could just turn our big mature businesses into that, well, that doesn't work either because those guys have some advantages and disadvantages. And what the world needs now is a combination of the two working together. That is possible. And there's a way to get from here to there, even though there are a lot of barriers. And the story is about all of that. And what people take from, you say, what's the fundamental message? One of the things we learned back when we wrote the Iceberg book is different people took away different fundamental lessons Mm. based upon their own histories and who they were. That's one of the other advantages of um, this format. So we can already see it in the emails we're getting from people who've read the um, Meerkat book. But it's all about very basic stuff, very basic problems that people are facing, uh, working people are facing, and some big answers about doesn't have to be this way and how you can work your way um, out of it. Mm, well, that's exactly where I want to go next. So you are kind of the one of the world's leading authorities on change management stuff. And so it's an honor to have you. And thank you again. So I'd like to hear you've got a bit of an eight step process when it comes to making change happen. Could you give us a little bit of a march through that? This is all based on a lot of study of a lot of organizations over the years. We discovered that the people who were particularly good at taking on big initiatives and actually achieving them and in the right time frame and have them stick, managed to get a sense of urgency around the need for change up front, a very high sense of urgency, much higher than the complacency that you so often see in organizations. And then they put together a group of people who really were powerful enough or strong enough or competent enough to make something difficult happen. And those folks would, uh, in light of the situation, clarify, okay, what is our vision of what we're trying to do? Communicate that in tons of different ways to, to help people understand it and to go beyond understanding, to actually buy into it. And then create conditions that would enable anybody that wants to grab that vision and run with it in their particular domain, that they are enabled to do it and they're inspired and motivated, that they actually get wins, not just uh, energy and activity, but solid successes, and that this keeps up uh, over a period of time. You don't just get a couple of successes, declare victory and, and go home, but you keep kind of winning and winning and winning and winning until it's stable once again in a new configuration. You're actually doing something in a new way. That does work. That makes sense under the circumstances. And then actually paying attention to let's make sure this is going to stick. Has it sunk in enough? Is it consistent with other ways we do things? Or is it too dependent upon the current leader and he leaves and it's going to slide back to the way it was. So it's kind of what we call institutionalization. 
that process you find again and again and again when you find particularly successful changes in organizations. Thank you for that. Maybe could you walk us through an example here, starting with the urgency and all the way through institutionalizing the change in an organization? I imagine you have so many of them. So if I could be choosy, I might ask for something that changed the culture of a workplace such that it was less toxic and more helpful to employees. I don't know if I'm getting too specific, but (laughs) if you have an example somewhere in that ballpark, kind of walking through how these eight steps unfolded. Sure. I can think of one. So this is a work group within a larger organization. And I don't know where it started. I don't think it was even the department head who first jumped onto this, but somebody that reported to her that was relatively new in the organization who said, this is, I can't believe it. You know, we got some good people here and it's it's not a bad company. Obviously, I, I wouldn't have joined if I thought otherwise, but I'm having trouble, you know, getting out of my car in the morning. Uh, in the parking lot, Mm. which means there's something wrong here. There's something about the culture of this group that is just creepy, you know, and it's creepy. It doesn't make us feel good. It gets in the way because it doesn't make us feel good. I'm not the only person kind of sitting out in their car wondering if they should really get out and go into work. He started talking to some of his colleagues about this, didn't win uh, overwhelming uh, enthusiasm at first. But some other people, it's amazing, would say, you know, um, you're right. So they start talking it up more and more. And at some point, the word reaches the uh, department head, and they found some way to basically position it that it wasn't an attack on the bosses. It was more of a matter of we've got some great people, and we've got an opportunity to do so much more, we think with this, you know, some history mm. that goes far beyond anybody here has, has created what we are. That's normal. Why can't we create something that is really a terrific place to work that makes people feel good, that makes people want to jump out of their cars and come in in the morning? And I don't know how much the boss really believed um, this was a great idea, but she went along and they uh, started talking to other people, and a few other people got excited about this. And then they, again, with the boss's permission, three or four of them became the core group that drive this, not as a committee, you know, and not as a project, because what they're really doing is helping provide leadership to make something happen. And they tried articulating what do we mean more than what I've just told you here? What would a, to use your term, a non-toxic environment look like, which comes into the view of kind of vision? And they wrote something down and they showed it to a few people and then they kind of revised it until they started getting some people that said, this would be good. And again, the boss, I, I frankly don't know how much She was really convinced this would be a big deal, but it was hard to argue with, and especially since they weren't attacking her as, you know, we got a problem and obviously you're the boss, you're the idiot that created it. (laughs) So she started saying, we got some folks that are, that are kind of providing some initiative on this. And I think this is a great idea. So 
She gave them some latitude, and they picked out a few very specific things that they could do, underline do, not just talk, do. So if we were non-toxic, what kind of actions would people take to make this healthy, exciting, fun? And they invented a few projects, make sure the boss didn't think these were goofy things, didn't ask, by the way, for extra time. We're going to go halftime on this, quote, project. And, and uh, no, no, they just did it somehow, fitted it into their workday because they got excited about it. They succeeded because they just really wanted to make it happen. And it did create a certain aura around it that helped productivity because more people, well, just wanting to come to work and be there and not be, you know, hiding in their cubicles, mumbling about the organization. And that creates its own momentum. And the boss actually communicated that out with some pride. Look at what we're able to do. And not quite a champagne celebration because it was a little thing, but some notification and smiling. And so they took on a second one. And then uh, some other people said, basically, uh, you know, I've got an idea. We've got a stupid filing system that drives everybody crazy and it achieves nothing. Why do we need to do it? Why do we do it? Well, of course, it traces back to something that had happened in 1943 that uh, has no relevance today. And so they tried to figure out who was in charge. Nobody was in charge of that. So they told the boss, this is getting into everybody's way. And yet it takes time to maintain this thing. Time wasted. Nobody likes it. Why can't we get rid of it? With some negotiation, the boss said, try it. And people were astonished. All of a sudden, they don't have to keep this stupid thing going. So more smiles, more feeling that uh, work is an idiotic. And, you know, and so somebody else comes up with another project. And, and it's this series of kind of win-win-wins, more people becoming involved, a few setbacks, a few grumpy older colleagues. This is normal. This is life. It's very easy to come up with 16 reasons why things the way they are have a logic to it and don't waste our time changing it. And it actually got to the point where it went over the tipping point, so to speak, and the place felt differently. And once that happened, even more action takes place because people are in a new frame of mind. And this doesn't happen over three or four months, but over the next couple of years, and with the boss now starting to get some recognition from her boss, that something obviously was happening down there. He could even see it in the metrics because productivity was going up. It not only changed, it became a new set of habits, if you will, that weren't inadvertently toxic habits that kind of ground themselves into the culture. It takes some time, but there's the pattern. You know, get a little bit of urgency up. There is an issue here and uh, get together a group that wants to really focus on it and get some clarity about what the heck we're talking about, get some initiatives going, make sure they win, and then cycle back. Another initiative, another win, celebrate the whole thing, and make sure that it, there's nothing that ultimately it's going to be so dependent upon when they go back to just not paying attention to it, it's going to evaporate on them. But this is not project management. This is not more task forces. This is not kind of a traditional way of managing a business or 
actually even managing change. What this is all about ultimately is leadership, not with a in the sense of uh, you know Roosevelt, Mandela. I mean, it's it's the kind of leadership that any of us can provide. We just don't because we're not asked to provide it. We're not taught along the way that this should be a part of our um, our routine. I mean, if there's anything in the world today that I wish I had the magic wand or the gold fairy dust that was powerful enough to change in this world, it would be to help people to understand that leadership is not the province anymore of the few. The only way we're going to be able to adapt to increasing technological change, to climate change, I mean, name anything you care about, is it's going to require lots and lots of us, literally millions of us, in some small way, helping to provide the leadership to actually change things. And the notion of, well, I'm not charismatic, I look in the mirror, I don't look like the great leader. This has been drilled into your head by society since you were probably young, except for the high school graduation speech in which they called you all leaders, which was a joke. (laughs) And you've got to get that out of your head. The idea is not for you to take over the CEO's job or the prime minister's job, but to in your little arena think I and some other people around me can provide leadership to produce the change that helps us leap into the future. And by the way, this will make me feel better. This will make my work and my life feel more meaningful. This is good for me and my health. So start changing yourself and get out there and provide leadership. Okay. I'd love to hear that. So thinking in particular about sort of young professionals who are not in the CEO or director or maybe even manager spot that, you know, that could be individual contributors or with their first kinds of direct reports. What are the very first step. So you got a whole book about the first step, A Sense of Urgency. But could you give us a view for how does one sort of get that sense up and going and permeating? This is an excellent question. And it's going to sound like a dodge to say, my gut at this point is that it depends upon who you are. In other words, it's hard to come up with universal generalizations, except, of course, read all of my books. (laughs) Besides that, Where you are, the kind of organization you're in, the kind of job you're in, will probably make some difference in terms of an intelligent first step. Besides, just coming to grips psychologically with the fact that leadership is not just the job of the guy two levels or four levels up from you in an organization, that that was a big lie that um, society pounded on all of us. And then it's a matter of, I mean, is trying something. There are some people, for example, that I've known over the years who have looked for opportunities outside of work first to test things out in a lower risk environment on some committee that is associated with their child's school. There are organizations that basically help people with public speaking, and you get a chance to both learn and then try some things out because uh, being able to talk in front of a group certainly helps you when you're trying to provide uh, leadership, and a lot of us are just naturally nervous about that. Doing it outside of work again, low risk, 
So that's one avenue that I have seen people try. Another avenue, of course, is to look around you in work and find somebody that you think, and it'll usually be above you in the hierarchy, but not always, that you find yourself saying, I'd follow this person about anywhere. Okay, then start watching them more carefully. And get beyond, you know, silly notions like, well, they're charismatic, I'm not charismatic. Stop it, stop it, stop it. You know, whack yourself in the head when you think that. Look at what they actually do that seems to add up and engender the feeling in you that this person is a good leader. And then say to yourself, where can I find an opportunity to take one of these things or two of these things and actually incorporate it into uh, what I'm doing at work? I mean, it's wonderful if you could actually find a person like that who could become a mentor. But a lot of people, that's just beyond their possibilities. But for some cases, I've seen that that be a very important part of somebody's career. It's not just generic mentoring. It's mentoring around specifically how you can grow as a leader. Uh, I think for some people, an opportunity comes along. There is some new big strategic initiative, and they just you know wave their hand in the air until somebody notices and, and says, listen, I'd be willing to work on this and work on this above and beyond. You know, this is not just, uh, I'll do my job, but I'd like to help out. And they talk their way in the door, and they use this thing, which is already set up and designed for coming up with and executing some kind of a change, which is a natural setting for people to be demanded, essentially, that they provide some leadership to start looking for opportunities in an environment where leadership is not being stomped down because it is a strategic initiative that's going to demand change, sometimes that comes along. So what I'm saying is it's kind of scanning your environment and asking yourself, where are the opportunities for me to take a step outside of work? Just observing a great leader, a coach, a new initiative, and use your common sense and grab what is available and go with it. And then grab the second thing that's available and you will grow. Okay, thank you. I'd love to maybe take about one minute or so to think about when it comes to sort of the internal emotional experience of this, whether you're initiating the change and and doing some leading and frightened about it. Or you're kind of receiving the change and just kind of annoyed or irritated, like, I think what we did before was just fine. What are some of your pro tips or research-based best practices in terms of doing that self-emotional management and flourishing amidst the changing environment? That's a very good question, because the reality is most of us, at some level, even if we don't acknowledge it, when change is coming at us, there's at least a little piece of it that starts getting scared or if it's being imposed on us in really, really awful jackboot ways, we get anger, which doesn't necessarily direct us to be most effective. And one of the things that I try to do, probably not very effectively personally, 
is I talk to my wife. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, she knows me very well, and I say, this is what's happening, you know. Am I helping? Am I not helping? Are there some things? And she will be very blunt, you know. Yeah, no, John, you're being a jerk, and this isn't helping a lot. And you're probably being a jerk because it's pushing you out of your comfort zone, and yet what they're trying to do makes an awful lot of sense, at least the way you describe it. So it's not just relying, in my case, I'm saying, don't just rely on yourself because some people are really good at that. They're really good at being reflective and seeing what's happening around them and what's happening inside of them and drawing good conclusions. A lot of us are not terrific. And if you can find somebody, it could be a good friend, uh, somebody at work who's a really, really good friend. I mean, that's ideal. And being very candid about it. You know, this is what's happening. What do you see? What do you, how, do, how do you see me reacting? <laughs> you know, is it obvious to you uh, how I'm feeling? Is this driving me in a way that is healthy? I have found that at least to be um, very useful. Thank you. Before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things, is there anything else you just want to make sure that we get out there first? Just that it's almost trite to say that the world is changing to the point where I don't think we really understand it or do much about it. Because the reality is last week is not that much different than this week. And that's what we experience. Our experiences are rarely, unless something very dramatic happens, that there's enormous continuity. The best predictor of your behavior tomorrow, for example, is your behavior today. Mm -hmm. That's just what social psychologists have found. And it's tough sometimes to take a step back and see the broad sweep of things, you know, what has happened over the last five years. If we could, I think maybe not everybody, but almost all of us would discover that things are not only changing, but they're changing faster. And we've got to do something about that if we want to have a terrific career and a terrific life. With change comes opportunity. And maybe that's something that I haven't talked about here much, but once you get out of change as a potential source of hazard or change that is a real threat and start seeing it for what it also is, is whenever you shake things up, new opportunities appear. And a lot of the most successful people in the world, of course, are lucky, but they're lucky in that they're able to, not just that new opportunities came along, but they were able to see them when other people were not alert and let them slide by. So I would say start thinking more opportunities. Start letting your brain focus more with what one might call opportunity thinking because they are out there. They are around you, even in crummy organizations and crummy jobs. In a changing world, you will find them, and that can be the beginning of an adventure, which trust me is going to involve leadership, which you will learn more and more about that can make a big difference in your uh, life. Thank opportunity. Okay, I will. Thank you. So, well, now could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I find about a a hundred things that Winston Churchill said during the 19, say, 39 to 1945 period, incredibly inspiring. The Brits were under horrible, horrible, horrible conditions where their whole civilization could have been wiped out, basically. 
And he provided the leadership with lots and lots of other people that he kind of inspired into it to make what looked at times like something that was hopeless turn around and and they won. And it's easy to find Churchill quotes, you know, go into the Internet and just put down Churchill quotations or something like that. And you'll find not one, but dozens of really cool things. If you've never done that, I urge you to do it. Okay, thank you. And how about favorite tool, something that you use often that boosts your effectiveness? If uh, you took away my iPhone, I would probably crawl up into a small ball and die. Okay, well, we won't. We won't. And how about a favorite habit, uh, a personal practice of yours that's been helpful? I stay on a um, pretty regular schedule in terms of getting up and going to bed. And I'm a morning person, so I get up very early, and I even do that on the weekends. And I go to bed at a regular time. And this one regimen, I have the funny feeling, helps um, create a certain stability in in a life that can be pretty unstable, especially when you're doing new things all the time. That helps me kind of an oddity. Maybe it's very personal, but that's for me. What would you say is the best place to find you if folks want to learn more and check out your stuff? Probably go to the Cotter International website. That's just one word. So K, not C, K-O-T-T-E-R-I-N-T-E-R, et cetera, national.com. There is some cool stuff on there that isn't just trying to sell you anything. It's trying to help uh, people understand what's going on these days. And it also has an easy way to uh, get in contact with me. And my people will actually pass that on. They don't. Uh, so if you get an answer, it's not some junior staff person. It's actually me. Cool. Thank you. And do you have a parting challenge or call to action you'd issue to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Well, it's a piece of advice, and I've already said it. I'm telling you, I've researched and thought about this a long time, that if you start thinking about yourself, that part of your life and part of your job and part of your responsibility uh, as a parent or a friend is to help provide some leadership to situations that are changing more and more, you will get better at it and it will make a difference and it will make you feel better and life feel more meaningful uh, beyond what you can imagine right now. So I'm telling you, try it. Try it. Think. Lead. 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 I'm sold. Okay, thank you. Well, John, this has been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time. And I just hope you have tons of luck with Cotter International and your teaching and your books and, and all the cool things you're doing here. Well, I appreciate that. Really appreciate those tidbits from John and I also really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. No matter where you are, there's some things you can do to make a bigger impact, to change things, get things going in some better, more positive directions. Again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to things mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F73. And if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss guests like our next one, Thomas Mangum. He oof, is so inspiring and it's good stuff. He's talking about championship teams and what it really takes. And we get real we get into some of the emotional heart stuff of it. Mm, it's powerful. So I hope you'll be joining us for that one. And until then, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 